0: So just to finish off uh, what I was saying this morning and then uh, I'd like to show you or offer you a, uh, a kind of a map or a, a model of the stages of the journey. Um, so I was, we were talking about um, the uh, the attraction that we have to this journey of change and transformation, and as soon as we begin to make it, we encounter our resistance. We discover that we are complicated. Unlike a child who just is attracted and goes straight into it, we start putting up uh, barriers and resistance. Meditation is simple, but not easy. And I was saying that Lent is a symbolic time but an actual opportunity for 40 days to focus upon um, both the, the deep attraction we have towards wholeness and integration and at the same time the, the dark side of ourselves which resists that and, uh, and complicates it and, and often makes us give up or despair. And that led us to talk about the nature of sin and instead of thinking of sin uh, in legal terms as the breaking of a rule which will be punished as if you were speeding on the highway, uh, we approach sin in its uh, biblical sense, which is the word hamatia, which is as a missing the mark, so somebody, you, you, you shoot an arrow at a target and you miss the target. That is sin uh, in the biblical sense. And you don't punish somebody for making a mistake. You don't punish yourself if you fail at something. Uh, what do you do? You, you learn from the failure, from the mistake, you integrate it and you try again. So <clears throat> meditation it gives us a, a fundamental, n- fundamentally new relationship to ourselves in that part of ourselves which is the most weak and vulnerable where we make mistakes or where we feel we have made a mistake. Or for some people there is even the feeling that I am a mistake. You know? uh, for some reason early in childhood or in social conditioning uh, you have grown up with the feeling that you were wrong or that you are unacceptable, so this could be a, this this could be a deeply embedded uh, perception of ourselves or conviction about ourselves that we 're not even fully aware of, but we see the consequences of it in daily life and in our relationships so we we, we heard that in the contemplative tradition, meditation is the work that dries up this root of sin within us. We looked at the, uh, the nature of addiction in relationship to uh, this journey. The tendency of the mind in its addictive nature is to misinterpret its own failures as, as if they deserved punishment. So we beat ourselves up first of all and then what do we do after that? We beat other people up. We blame ourselves and then when we got tired of blaming ourselves we start blaming other people. We become easily or religious people very easily become self-righteous, condemnatory and, and rejecting of others, of sinners. It's as if uh, we are, in, in Christian terms, we are actually denying and contradicting uh, the true nature and mission of Jesus who said, I have come not for the healthy but for the sick. It's the sick who need a, a physician, not the healthy. So if you're good and righteous and moral and perfect and fully integrated and harmonious and saintly, well, you don't need Jesus. You don't go to a hospital unless you're sick. You don't go to see a doctor unless you're in need of uh, healing. So sin originates in the human realm of weakness, of our fragility, our vulnerability. God does not punish us in this level of our weakness. We may feel it's a failure. We may feel unworthy, we may feel embarrassed, or ashamed, or guilty, but in that sense we punish ourselves. And in that sense, sin is punished, but sin contains its own punishment. It's not that the punishment comes from some divine uh, headmaster. The divine presence, the divine reality, does not judge or condemn or punish, by its very nature all it can do and what it does is to heal and to forgive. That's why when we feel healed and forgiven and when we can give healing to others and help others to heal and help them to feel forgiven, then we experience the Divine Presence, the Divine Love at work in us and through us. And this Divine Nature, this Divine Energy or Divine Consciousness uh, doesn't come from outside except in our imagination where we put it out there somehow or up there but it comes from within us, from ourselves, from our own true nature. And we find this healing, therefore, within ourselves, the healing of our own self-blaming guilt or at our own failure within us. and the borderline personality disorder as it's diagnosed, one of the essential elements of it is a a very poor self-image, but also a feeling of emptiness, that there's nothing in me, there's nothing in me to give, there's nothing in me that anybody would want, I don't even like myself, so how could anybody else like me? Together with this, there's another characteristic of this disorder, which is the inability to be alone, the fear or the reluctance to be alone, because I cannot like myself, and uh, I don't know myself, uh, I don't want to be with myself, so we find it any way we can, by projecting outwards, we become very externally oriented people, all sorts of different ways we can project ourselves outwards. Um, And this this does such harm to our true humanity, to our true self, that one of the most characteristic Features we're very well aware of today is self-harming. For example, young people, but not always, not only young people, not only young women, but who harm themselves either, you know, by cutting or by burning themselves sometimes. And why do they? Why does that happen? It happens in the best of families, you know, in, in. with young people you would think would have everything materially that they they would need. So for whatever reasons, it seems as if it's a way of combating that feeling of emptiness, of not feeling anything, of being kind of dead inside, but not experiencing that Resurrection that we were talking about this morning, that is part of the cycle of nature. We die, just like the seasons of the year, we die, everything goes underground, and then somehow it comes out of the ground again, and we, we are reborn. So, when we're stuck in this state of uh, fixation on sin, addiction to sin then uh, we are not able to be reborn that's the, that's the horror of it the, the horror is not so much that we are in this state but that we, we we don't have the the confidence that we will ever come out of it otherwise you, you know that you're going through a, a dark period, a period of acedia or a period of depression, a period of of uh, loss, but deep down you, you you're confident in the life process and it, you, you feel eventually I will emerge from this with a new life. But in this state we are locked into this perpetual death, with the sense of perpetual death. And when Jesus says, I have come that you may have life in all its fullness, I think he's addressing this, uh, this, uh, this, this characteristic of our, um, being stuck in the, the death part of the cycle of, of life. So, these outward forms of self-punishment or self-harm, and they can can take many forms, not only physical forms, you know, harmful addictions or uh, lifestyles that uh, are designed to destroy us and destroy our families and our relationships. Self-punishment reduces our feeling of guilt and failure. It reduces for the time being, like an opioid, it it reduces this guilt and shame at our being dead, our being isolated, our being basically unlovable. So we punish ourselves for that in all sorts of different ways. And it does, it can, like an opioid. It can free us from pain for a while and numbs the pain and then we go back to life as apparently normal, covering up this dark (coughs) process that's going on inside of us. So this would be the negative addiction that I was talking about this morning. And I was proposing us to see meditation as a positive addiction. Remember, the word addiction means to give yourself to something, literally. Now, to give yourself to something that is healing and restorative and life-giving demands work because it's, it's easier to develop bad addictions than it is healthy habits, that then become part of your life. So, so that's a little bit of expansion, but basically what I was, summary of what I was saying uh, this morning, what I wanted to do now was just look at the um, way of looking, uh, uh, to, to look at a model which gives us a way of looking at the uh, levels or stages that we pass through as we learn to meditate, as we try to acquire a, a good habit and allow that good habit to become second nature. So it just becomes part of our life. In terms of meditation, this takes time and discipline. Um, and so we all struggle with it, most people the great majority of people uh, struggle with developing that discipline and that habit. And then one day you wake up and you realize that it's part of you. And uh, it was expressed uh, very very well recently when I heard a a young doctor talking to his fellow um, professionals about the importance of meditation in their stressful and (coughs) demanding (coughs) lies, and he was saying to them, when I began to meditate, the difficulty was doing it twice a day. Now the difficulty is when I don't do it twice a day, and I realize that something important and something that is life-giving and enriching, is missing uh, from my life. <coughs> so that, <coughs> learning a habit, is a, uh, is a good... <coughs> learning a good habit is a uh, a, kind of a process. It takes time, <coughs> and it also takes companionship. Just as people who are addicted to something negative and self-destructive might do drugs together, or go out and get drunk together, or uh, or do irresponsible sex together, then as a a way of sharing their addiction, uh, in the same way, on the other side of the coin, uh, people who are developing a good habit will come together to practice it, as we do in meditation. You know, why should we come together to meditate? Why does meditation create community? And why is community apparently so valuable and necessary in order to develop this habit of meditation? They seem to go together, which is a little counterintuitive, because when we meditate, we're not... Communicating, we're not texting each other, we're not sharing ideas, we're not uh, looking at each other, even. But when we meditate, why is there this, this communal dimension to the uh, experience of solitude? It's something of a paradox. We'll look at that maybe tomorrow. So, but what I wanted to. Um, Talk about was uh, a way that we can understand the the journey, and I we could look at it this way: it's going through levels of consciousness, but it's going through in a way that helps us to understand the meaning of failure, of sin, missing the mark, not being where we should be. Um, and growth which is the relationship between failure and human development human growth now if like President Trump you think the only thing that matters is success then you brush all your failures under the carpet and you deny them and never let anybody see them and don't even think about them yourself and don't learn from them Which means you tend to go from bad to worse, because you don't learn from your mistakes. So this is one way of seeing our journey through the levels of consciousness, that we are are learning how to live with failure in a positive and creative way, not with shame and guilt and self-punishment. And at the same time, we discover this is amazingly leading to growth. Remember what St. Paul said, where there is sin, grace abounds all the more. So all growth is a movement to another level of wholeness. Although we admire and and revere the the innocence and the purity of, of the child's consciousness, it's not whole. It's an early stage of human development. And as we grow and develop, we pass through different levels, but we repeat the same process at each level. As we move from one stage or one level to another, we have to undergo what is at times a painful process of letting go of the past. We have to let go of it emotionally, and of course in meditation we realise that we also let go of it imaginatively. Unless we can let go of it imaginatively, we cannot really let go of it emotionally. Because the images and the memories of the past uh, capture us. That's why we let go of our imagination at the time of meditation. So, at each level of growth on the journey, we leave the previous level, the past, behind. That may involve the the pain, the feeling of loss, and the fear or the uncertainty of what's going to come next. But there's no way of avoiding that. Then, as we move into the next level, and we, we never are quite sure what the next level or the next stage is going to be like. But as we move into that next level, we realize that the past that we have left behind has, you don't actually leave it behind. You have to bring it with you and then absorb it and integrate it. It doesn't mean to say you spend all your life thinking about the past, but it means that at a certain existential level, this unconscious level, we have to, we have to uh, face and absorb and integrate the past. So for example, you had very bad relationships with your parents or with people you've loved, uh, the mistakes you've made. Um, Maybe mentally you can uh, say, I've dealt with that, it's all been taken care of, I've spoken about it with people. But actually the process of fully Owning it, integrating it, and then depowering it, so that it truly becomes the past, and that it's not holding you back in the past through unresolved uh, feelings or memories. This is the next the next big stage. So that growth then involves leaving it behind and, in a way, rolling it over, bringing it uh, in, into integration. So this is, this is the journey of human development. It's a journey that has stages, but also levels. So in other words, when we think of a journey, you know, by plane from Paris to London, uh, you know, it always takes the shortest route and it's a straight line and you can measure your progress uh, very easily and you know within. Uh, a few minutes of of arrival, you know, what time you're going to arrive. That's one model, that's the linear model of the journey, but there's the spiritual model of the journey, it recognises another kind of feelings of pattern of experience, that it's more of a spiral or a labyrinth. So we seem to be going, not horizontally, but, but going on a vertical axis deeper but we also go through it in this circular way they don't just go like that so these are these are just symbols to try to explain a um, something that is oh. Piece of paper. Sorry, I thought it So, okay, so let's let's look at the journey of meditation then. So, I can remember exactly the first time I was told about meditation. Having a conversation with uh, John Mayne, and unexpectedly he introduced me to meditation in a few words, with a very light touch. And my first reaction was mixed. I felt intellectually confused. How can you let go of your thoughts? I didn't know what that meant. But at the same time, what he said and the way he said it touched my heart and opened my heart in a new way to a deeper kind of knowledge, but also a desire. A desire for the kind of experience that uh, he was, or, or potential that he was, I think, that he was, um, that he was describing. But it took me uh, years. Before I actually got into the into the practice, I never stopped wanting. Thank you. I never stopped wanting to meditate, but um, uh, but I didn't. And I, I probably did on a few occasions meditate on my own, but it was it, also, it seemed pretty much a failure, so I gave up. Anyway, we can usually remember when we started to meditate. Now, today it's more because meditation is much more a a commodity on the market. You can download Headspace and, you know, people will tell you they meditate morning and evening. uh, And Headspace certainly, I think, helps people to calm down and relax. But I don't think most spiritual traditions would would say that it was meditation in the the real sense of the word. To make a distinction between mindfulness and meditation. But as many people today have experience of mindfulness, it takes them a bit of time to realize that, you know, it isn't just a question of putting on some headphones and hearing a nice, uh, hearing a voice sort of walk you down or calm you down and lay you flat. So meditation is more than that. So today, you know, I think we, you know, there's a different way in which people will hear about meditation and come to understand what it's like. I was fortunate, I, I feel, that I was introduced to it um, in the way that I was, and well, it took me a long time to get to it.
1: Anyway, we can usually remember
0: when we started to meditate in this way, so we're told sit down, close your eyes, sit still, and repeat your mantra. Very simple. Anyone can do that, surely. So we'll try it. It's a technique. I'll use meditation to get where I want to go. That's how we may approach it. And then we discover this very simple method is more, more complicated, and it feels much more complicated than it, than it sounds. Because we can't say the mantra for more than two or three seconds before we're completely distracted. And there is an immediate feeling of failure. I can't do it. I'm not good at it. I was talking to some students the other day, and one of them, she, she put it you know, very, very um, archetypally, archetypally um, Typically, she she said, and I'm just convinced that everybody else in the room is doing it better than me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, this feeling of failure and shame or embarrassment that I'm not uh, getting good results. So, depending on where you are, in yourself, on your own journey, depending on who you're with, depending upon your luck and your opportunities, you, you may give up entirely or you' can't, you keep coming back to it. You keep shooting the arrow at the target and missing. but instead of sticking the arrow in yourself and punishing yourself as a failure, you just get used to uh, coming back to it. And indeed that's exactly. What we do with the mantra, we start to say it, we get distracted, we stop saying it, mm-hmm. and what do we do then? What? So, you start saying the mantra, you get distracted, and then what? You say it again.
1: Say, it again. say it again. Quite
0: simple, isn't it? Now mm-hmm. those three stages of the mantra, which is the which is the one that actually takes you forward? Again. Yes, coming back to it again. So it's, that's what makes it faith. Faith is to stay faithful to what you have been doing. So every time we return to the mantra, we are exercising, strengthening our, our capacity for faith. As Saint Irenaeus said, or Saint Irenaeus of Lyon said, uh, the beginning is faith, <coughs> the end is love, and the union of the two is... What would you say, he said? What would you say? The beginning is faith, the end is love. Hope. Oh. Hope. Hmm? Oh. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Well, I mean, it's not what he said, but so I'm sure it's true. Yeah. What else? The beginning is faith, the end is love. No, sorry. The beginning is faith, and the end is love. Faith leads you to love. And faith and love, faith plus love equals God. Another way of looking at God. So, okay, so we we learn slowly with many infidelities, just as in a human relationship. Uh, We learn through failure, we learn to come back, we learn to reinvest ourselves in faith, uh, and any work that we undertake, uh, to be completed, needs uh, this, this uh, dimension of faith. So we come to another level, another level of consciousness. So this first level, up here, we could call ordinary consciousness. This is our daily distractions and the silly stuff in our mind that we, we can't get rid of and why are we thinking about such silly things. But you leave this level of consciousness as soon as you start to meditate. In the Gospel, when John the Baptist is, uh, goes public and starts preaching, he's out in the desert. Uh, preaching repentance and back then baptizing. And it says that the people from the town went out to see him. All of them. Great crowds went out. And they said to him, What shall we do? What shall we do? And that's when he spoke to them about repentance. So, this, just the The decision to meditate is making the first step to a new level. Away from the the marketplace of our minds, the the shopping mall of our minds, we go out into the desert and then we begin to get a taste for it. We begin to see that those times of meditation every day are Meaningful and valuable, and they are going out into the desert from our ordinary life. Or you come on a retreat from time to time, because you know that this helps you in this journey that you've started. It's another step of faith, the deepening of your faith, what you're doing these few days. Or every time you go into the chapel to meditate. So there's a change of time and space. We we let go of our our phones and our uh, to-do list, if we can, and then we we move to another level of consciousness over time. And this level of consciousness could be compared with the hard disk of a computer, where everything that has ever happened to you, or everything that you thought has happened to you, is recorded. Now you may think that you've dealt with a lot of that stuff, just as you may think you've cleared something off your computer, but if the FBI were to get hold of it, they could find all the secrets uh, that you, uh, of the past. So everything is recorded there, nothing is lost. And we may not be thinking about it anymore, but it's still there. A few, well, a few years ago, my mother died. A few, years, some years ago, but about uh, maybe, actually, maybe, some years, I uh, know, after she died, I was driving with Giovanni, and uh, I said we passing the cemetery where my mother was, uh, was buried. So I, we I went we went in, and uh, when I got to the grave, I wasn't feeling sad or grief stricken. But when I got to the grave, I just felt this wave of grief. And I, I was back where I was, which it was eight or nine years ago when my mother had died and I was standing by the grave as they lowered her coffin into the ground. I, it, was the, it was the same, exactly the same rush of, of grief. didn't last very long, but it, you say to yourself, where does that come from? So, we know that uh, this stuff is there. So, what happens in meditation is that just as saying the mantra as best you can at this level of your noisy, distracted mind is going to have the effect of calming the mind over time and even during the meditation, but it will begin to calm the mind Make it clearer and more focused. So at this level of consciousness, when many of the distractions are subliminal, just feelings, memories, maybe vague uh, associations, sometimes, certainly in the early stages of meditation, you may find yourself suddenly remembering or thinking about some period of your life or some relationship that um, you thought. You had pretty well dealt with, and then suddenly it comes back very fresh. But most of this work of integration, and that's what's being done here, is integration, most of the healing, most of this is being done in the unconscious. So this second level uh, is where we say, we could say this level is the present. That's the day-to-day, what's happening today kind of mental consciousness. All the meetings I've got to do, all the emails I've got to answer, all the decisions I have to take, and all all the stuff that I can't cope with because it's too much.
1: So that's that level of mind.
0: It's real, but it's not the only level. Then this level of the mind we could say is the past either the most recent past or the distant past, or even the pre-conscious past. And here we have to confront many attachments, things we've become attached to, either good things that we knew and that we've lost, or bad things, painful things that we knew that we're still attached to and we would like to let go of, but we can't. So here the work of detachment is happening, but it's a healing work. Many of these attachments are buried deep, they're forgotten or denied memories. Part of ourselves has been left behind in the past, and we cannot be whole unless the bits of ourselves that have been stuck in the past through these emotional attachments are dragged into, the, in, in, into this process of integration. We have to catch up and be integrated. We have to see these things, at least even if we don't analyze them, we have to be prepared to see them, and we may have to release them. Sometimes that happens through body work as well. And, we then also, in some way, have to confess, or, I don't mean in the sense of blaming yourself, but we have to share it in some way. So these are all subtle aspects of this process of what we could call repentance. Repentance doesn't mean feeling guilty about the past, it means integrating the past not running away from it and not thinking the past is another country because the past is with us. And it will control us from our most painful and deep memories if we don't go through this work of integration. And then, again, we're saying the mantra all this time. We're not thinking about all these things, except after meditation. But as each time, at each stage, each level at which we are being led on this journey, what are we being led by? Faith. We're faithful to the mantra. Not because the mantra is magic or the band-aid solution to everything. It's because saying the mantra is a way of faith. faith. Saves you, Jesus said. You're not saved by belief. You're saved by faith. So, you know, it is said that even the devil believes in God. So it's not belief that saves you, but faith. And faith is a kind of knowledge. And faith above all is connection or relationship. We talk about faithful love or faithful commitment to a work. It's this faith that integrates the personality and allows us to develop and mature. If you don't risk yourself in faith by making a commitment, you're not going to grow very much, are you? So, so the mantra is, is, is the way, in, this, in meditation, in this way, Meditation is the way we faithfully follow. And to say, yeah, but there are many other forms of meditation, yes, of course there are. But what's the point of saying that? It's like saying, there are many other cities in France I can go to. Or, but we have to be in one of them. Are we going to jump from one city to the other for the rest of our life? Or are we going to settle? And that's. That's a choice, or that's, it's a choice, or it's a discovery really, more than a choice that we make. But just to say, ah, yeah, I'd like to keep all my options open, that's not, it doesn't represent, it doesn't reflect a very, yet a very serious understanding of what faith means. Anyway, if you are following this way, At first, at this level, you're saying the mantra with constant interruptions. Here, as the mantra sinks more deeply into the heart, as i was saying yesterday, it's more as if you're sounding it. So you're saying it, but with less effort, less self-consciousness. It's like you're breaking it in, you know, you're, you're becoming familiar with it. And here, at this level, it's more as if you were listening to it. This is where your attention is really coming off yourself. As you listen to the mantra, this is where your faith plunges you into God, into deeper union. Because the attention is coming off yourself. So, what is this level? Well, this level of consciousness you could call the brick wall of the ego, the feeling of um, uh, you know, that there is me between me and you or between me and God or between me and what I am doing or want to do. So it's the ego, it's the shadow of the ego reflected in everything that we do with everyone that we are spending time. And there comes a point where you realize that this shadow of the ego is there, the sense of separation, the sense of self-consciousness, and with all of the other things that the ego has, desire, control, possessiveness. And you you say to yourself, I would really like Get rid of this ego. And just be my self in this place, with this person, doing this thing, whatever it is I'm doing. Just doing it simply like a child. Without having to have all of this ego stuff coming up and interfering. So, but what do we do here? You can't just wave a magic wand and the ego disappears. The ego is a very complicated part of our consciousness, because it's been around a long time, since we were about 18 months, and it's also accumulated a huge amount of baggage and wounds. The ego is there to manage the necessary separations in your developmental journey. You've got to separate from your parents, and from your school, and from your different phases of your life, and. Uh, Whatever. And each of these separations, natural ones, not to speak of the painful, you know, or, or rather, not to speak of the, you know, the, the, the catastrophic separations of our life, but even these ordinary, necessary separations have pain. That's why we are very, we're very frightened of change. Because we know that to change is to separate, and to separate is going to leave a bit of a scar. So, the ego has all of these, and over the years we've built up a brick wall that kind of protects us, we think. We think it protects us, but then we realise one day that actually i built a prison around myself. How, good. How am I going to get out of this prison? And then, what can we do? We just have to be faithful. By this time we've learnt a lot about meditation, why we meditate, our own experience has taught us a lot, and we've learned to say the mantra with deeper faith. So we just Sit here, patiently, more or less, waiting. And then a brick wall falls out. Uh, A wall, sorry, a wall (laughs) falls out of the brick. A a brick falls out of the wall. A brick falls out of the wall. And then as soon as the, the brick comes out, you see through it. You see the wall is not absolute. It's not blocking us completely. It's just an obstacle but there's something on the other side of the wall. And these are little moments or experiences of liberation. Maybe a fear is reduced or disappears, or a phobia, or a bad habit that we have developed, or an addiction, and we find ourselves, surprisingly, free. Then we have to get used to being free. They say that when people die, at that, that, that first, they're not aware that they're dead, so they have to get used to being dead. And uh, so maybe in the same way, even while we're alive, we have to get used to being alive, to being free. So, and over time, more and more bricks fall out of the wall. They're still not perfect. We still have our problems and hang-ups and our personality uh, traits. Nevertheless, we know that something is changing in us. And then what else? Well the next thing is something we can't we can't observe. Jesus said, they asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And it's such an it's such a common, obvious question to ask the students. Uh, I was talking about, uh, asked the other day, Um, I know we we really shouldn't ask this uh, question, but how long does it take? When do you think we will know that this is really working? How long do I have to do this for before I get short? So when they asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And he said, you can't observe it, sorry. You can't say, look, here it is, or there it is. Because, in fact, the Kingdom of God is within you and among you. So it's not a dualistic experience. It's not something you can sit and look at and say, oh, that was a great evening, we had a wonderful dinner, it was a great trip, it was a fantastic movie. It's not that kind of thing that we remember, so it's not in the dualistic World. So remember, the ego protects us from non duality. The ego is saying to us all the time, I am not you. So there's you and me, there's us, there's me and them. So the ego is is the, is the dynamic force of, non, of, of duality. And it has its purpose and value up to a point, but it's also not the final stage of human development. So, in God's own time, this barrier opens up. And this level, we could call the eternal now of God. We call it the dimension of the spirit. So this is like the subatomic <coughs> uh, level of physics compared with the Newtonian physics of cause and effect, the duality up here. Now we find ourselves in this strange world where which is very different, but not unrelated, but very different from this world of the past and the daily the daily consciousness. And this is like the frontier of our identity. We are coming into a different kind of self-knowledge. We know ourselves, not objectively, but from within, in a different way from the way we know ourselves here, or here, or in the ego. Now from a Christian perspective, at this frontier of our identity, we meet a guide. Jesus, not the Jesus of history, but the risen Jesus, the one we're planning to uh, celebrate at Easter. So he is, he is here with us, it's not that he was there in the past and we read these beautiful stories about him and write long books about him, this is where he is. But we can only know him if we are here, in the spirit, in the present. And to encounter, to meet, however you you describe it, or in the gospel sometimes it just says, he happens, a happening. So when we meet him in the spirit, in this dimension of our own self-knowledge, we recognize him. Now everyone's journey is different, and, but let's say we recognize him. It doesn't mean he wasn't here with us up here, or in our memory, or carrying the cross with us here, but we didn't recognize him. We just had sort of ideas about him and a vague, vague sense of presence sometimes. And all the resurrection appearances that we'll be reading in a few weeks are about this strange and mysterious but deeply intimate and transformative experience of recognition. At first they didn't recognize him, sometimes they feared him, when they saw him, it was confusing, but eventually they recognized him. Maybe one of the reasons they feared him was because they realized they had failed him. Because they ran away when he was, when they, he, he, he needed them. They ran away. Saved their own skins. They didn't feel very proud about what happened. Maybe they even felt some anger against him. He had failed them. maybe something, that's what Judas may have felt. But whatever, there was this, there was, they would have had a sense of failure towards him before his death. But then, meeting him here in the resurrection, they, when he communicates to them, there's no reference to the past. There's no analysis of how they failed. No evaluation of how they had failed him. Not at all. There's not the slightest mention of the past. Because everything has been integrated now into into the present moment, into the spirit, into the eternal now. It's all there. It's all been done. All of this has been resolved. And so, all that we do is recognize him. And then what happens is we are empowered by what we recognize. And the gospel accounts of the resurrection are all about people being empowered and sent back to live this life with meaning and purpose and energy and confidence and love. So they are completely turned around. There is a metanoia. So here you have repentance which is Bringing you know healing past metanoia is changing your mind, being a new person in the sense that you you have a new life. You see everything differently. You see everything of the whole of this journey differently. Everything is now integrated, and your life instead of feeling as if it were narrowing down because of all the limitations you have and all the problems you have and all the stuff you have to work with, instead of this feeling of narrowness and constriction and limitation, there is this sense of (coughs) infinite expansion, which is the experience of God, of course. So, Another way we can describe this is the Greek word agape. Agape is boundless love, love without limitations. It's the experience of God knowing that God knows us, of being known. Not just of knowing in an objective or dualistic way, but knowing because we are known. So it's not only that we recognize him, that he recognizes us. That's captured in the story of Mary Magdala in the garden. When she sees him, she's weeping because she's lost him. Uh, She thinks he's the gardener. They have this conversation. And uh, she still doesn't recognize him. And then he looks at her and says, Mary, And at that instant, she recognizes him. So the the loop is is, is completed. So now, uh, what does this mean? Does it mean that this is something that's going to happen in 20 years time, and uh, when that happens, all all of these other levels of consciousness shut down? Well, it's not what our experience is, is it? But we do feel that this level of consciousness, if you like, is becoming more real to us, because we are already there. It's just we don't know it, we're not awake. But we become more aware of it and have moments of insight into it as the bricks fall out of the wall. There's a growing sense in which we also, of course, to a very large degree, acquire through our relationships with other people, and can share in a community that we meditate with. So this level of consciousness, as it were, becomes more awake. And as it becomes more awake, it it ripples out, and, and has an influence on these other levels. So there are two levels at which this transformation happens. One is, as it were, just the... if you just the, the, the work you're doing in meditating is going to calm the mind, heal your memories, and reduce your ego. It will just happen. But that's nature. That's just the natural effect of meditation. But there's something greater than that, and this is grace, which is the free experience of God, God's gratuitous love, welling up. And that's pushing up and completing this natural work. And there's a basic principle of theology that grace works on nature. So this is the natural work of meditation, that's why meditation is not so easy and why you have to Make an effort to do it sometimes and do the discipline and so on. But grace as much as comes to complete this. So St. Paul says also, we do not know how to pray. We're not very good at praying because we're very distracted, because we're very weak, because we're, you know, human beings. And we're not saints. Uh, But the spirit uh, praise in us deeper than words. So this is, as it were, our prayer, but it's a very small energy, but necessary, but very incomplete, and a bit of a failure in many ways. We, have to, we understand failure and sin correctly as we go through this process, but grace wells up and completes what we cannot do ourselves. So it's a it's a not a very well-drawn map, but it's uh, something about uh, so what I was saying was that, that these levels don't shut down, but that changes occur in them. So the mind does become calmer and you, you find yourself able to concentrate and pay attention better. Uh, your psychological your state uh, also becomes more healed. and Memories can become healed and things that you couldn't accept, you begin to accept. You feel more whole, healed. And here, your ego also becomes um, better adjusted to reality and less of a, you know, a monster or a terrified child. So these there are changes that take place, but the thing that really attracts our attention is the growing meaning of this experience, which at first we don't know, well we don't know how to explain. But this experience becomes more and more the focus of the journey and the practice. So, people have been meditating for a certain amount of time, they will probably say, well, I'm a very bad meditator. I'm still very distracted. I've been meditating for 20 years and I'm still not good at it. So why are you doing it? Not because they had done it successfully, but because this deeper level of the spirit has begun to awaken.